morning, um, and welcome to the bridge. I'm uh, really grateful to have the opportunity to come and, and speak this morning in Heath's absence. It came as a surprise to me uh, when he approached me and wanted to include me in this uh, stewardship uh, series of lessons. And, you know, I've, I'm a relative newcomer to the, the bridge. I, I work at First Pres. Uh, as um, I'm the director of missional communities, which basically that means I'm trying to help us start uh, creating a pipeline for new churches in the city of Houston. And I'm not going to speak much about that this morning, but if you'd like to, to know more about what's going on in that, I'm happy to, to talk with you over coffee or lunch. But uh, so I, it was about a year ago that uh, I kind of had my first experience with the bridge, and it was the Thursday night uh, Bible studies that but so we are, uh, for this month, in a, a series on stewardship, three-week series. And for those of you who were here two weeks ago, you heard uh, Brian Mitchell, who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, but I don't think, but, uh, but I heard, heard him. And he uh, talked about sort of the essence of stewardship and the heart of stewardship, that uh, Godward stewardship makes an investment in things that last forever, uh, rather than things that... Uh, will only last for this life. And then Heath, picking up that theme next, uh, the next week, talked about our personal uh, responsibility towards stewardship, how uh, we are um, responsible for many things. Uh, it's, it's, it's just so great to come into a church and, and hear the, the sounds of, of young uh, boys and girls uh, and children, and, and, but it's a reminder that uh, people in this congregation have been... Uh, given a trust with those relationships, with those kids. Um, and so stewardship is more than just how you spend your money, how much money you give into the plate each morning, morning, but it's how you use your influence. It's how you use opportunities that you have in your work or in your recreation and, uh, and how, you, uh, how you use your time. And I think for, for most of us, if, if kind of like me and, uh, and you know, generation um, I'm sort of on the edge of the Gen X millennial generation, so whichever conversation I'm having, whether it's millennials are great or millennials are the bane of, you know, the American culture, I tend to, you know, vacillate between those generations. But as part of a younger generation, I think we would confirm, uh, we affirm that, that one of the most, the hardest things for us to steward well is our time. Um, and so, uh, so that, that's been kind of the, the thrust. I think it's a very poignant, important time to be uh, to be talking about this idea of stewardship. And so it's, it's kind of fallen to me uh, this morning to conclude the series with, okay, so what? So what? So, so if we understand stewardship, if we understand what it means to steward our resources, steward ourselves well, okay, so what? And so I've been given the task of talking about the stewardship of mission. And I'll say as, a, as just a personal uh, testimony at the, at the beginning, uh, so as I have understood what God's mission in the world is, and I, th I think the scriptures are, are pretty clear, very clear about what God's mission in the world is, and I have looked for ways to try to participate in that mission uh, in, you know, my walk with the Lord. Um, it has really changed and transformed my attitude towards what my life is for, who God is, and, uh, and, and my view of the world around me. Um, I don't, uh, you know, have any, um, you know, great, um, you know, honors to my name or anything, but in the past couple of years, I have been participating in my role at uh, FPC and helping to, to start and partnering actually with members of this congregation for uh, um, the, the Jericho House, a, a, a house for men in recovery, uh, coming out of uh, recovery programs and then being a, 
connected through intentional Christian community and, and, uh, and helping to transform communities in our, our city that are in, in need. And um, what neighborhood is that? You know, what, what neighborhood is not in need in our city? But, but uh, they are transforming, hopefully, their, their, their neighbors' lives and the lives of those around them. And then um, have gotten more involved in Cullen Middle School. If you, if you talk to me with, at any length, it comes up about just my heart for uh, one of the schools that is struggling the most in the city of Houston, down in, um, down in South Union, uh, south of McGregor Boulevard in, in Greater Third Ward, and uh, just been convicted that um, if the church should be anywhere, it should be uh, standing in the gap and standing beside students and their families and teachers of, uh, of struggling public schools to help uh, students understand um, who they are, what this world is, uh, and be able to communicate and learn to read and learn how to, to process things so that they can come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. That that's just fundamental. Um, actually, part of our history as Christians, starting schools so that people could read the Bible, so that they could come to know Jesus. And so, if you, get, if you um, spend any time with me, I'll, I'll at some point hopefully introduce, or introduce you to that ministry and, and kind of my passion for that. Um, but I, oh, another thing I've learned to love in the last year in my new role at FPC is I've learned to love church plants. What I lo- and I, what I love particularly about church plants is that there's a vibrancy, a passion. Uh, you really do get to know deeply people. But also an advantage of church plants is that you, don't, you get to sort of reset and you get to uh, take steps of faith out and establishing what the mission of the church plant is going to be. You can, uh, you can really move uh, forward into, into places of need, places where darkness is. And, uh, and, and church plants have the opportunity to do that because they're, they're new. And so if there was a, a group that should be interested in, okay, what is the mission of God? What is God's purpose for his community, his call upon believers? It should be groups like this, communities uh, seeking to be a light in a neighborhood like uh, Montrose and, um, and, and proclaiming and embodying the gospel. Uh, so what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I think, first of all, before we uh, jump into the, the text this morning, we'll go through some, uh, just referencing some text to kind of lay out a, a biblical framework. Um, one challenge that I see a lot of times in, in churches is that we, we do something, and then we call it mission. We do something, we're active in something, we're, we're working at something, and we call it mission. So it might be taking trips to a, another country where we go in for the experience of that short-term mission trip. There's a lot of benefit of short-term mission trips, but one of the things it doesn't do is it doesn't give the people that are on it the permission to say, all right, well, I'm doing my mission when I go and participate in those short-term mission trips. Um, we can get involved in causes just because we feel like, hey, we think those causes are good and we should commit our resources to them. Um, we can call those things something, you know, doing, doing good works, but, but can we call it the mission of the church? And, uh, and you know, I, I talked about stewardship, you know, just a second ago, and I, I talked about one of the things we have a hard time doing is stewarding our time wisely, and that's because all of us are really busy. All of us have the, the tyranny of the urgent, whether it be family concerns, whether it be community pressures, whether it be pressures from work, whether it be just the, the, the buzzing in our pocket that uh, we're experiencing on a, on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, and, and unfortunately, one thing we've all been very well conditioned to do is to be consumers, to, uh, to look around us, 
to see what is good and to, to reach out for it because believing almost subconsciously that by having more and being able to experience more, somehow it will be able to satisfy. And we want that thing quickly. We don't, uh, we don't often believe in the, the, the of, of, of foregoing instant gratification for a, for a longer-term um, longer good. And that's something that we all, I think, would, would, would simultaneously say is not the biblical picture of what, who we're supposed to be. But at the same time, it's so easy to fall into that custom. And so what happens is even though we're the best, better resourced than any place in the world, we, we're more mobile, we have more access, we have more potential to maybe do great things, we're more disconnected from ourselves and our communities around us. We are more discouraged about what we're doing and, and our prospects. Uh, we're lonelier. Uh, we tend to, to waste uh, more time. Um, and we are definitely more stressed. All of us, I think, are grappling with that. And so this question of mission, the, what, what God intends for, for, for human beings to do, is, is not merely so that they can produce what he has in mind. It's not that we're all put into uh, the, 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 the God's core of cadets and just are, are put on task to just fulfill the, the responsibilities he has for us. He actually builds within us um, a desire to have a purposeful, meaningful, and, um, yeah, just expression of, 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 our, of our lives. Um, but he does have a, a purpose about what that is, or he does have a clear sense of what that is that we should be aiming for in order to get to the point of living that purposeful, meaningful life that, I, that he promises, um, that he promises. So is there hope for renewal? Is there... Is, is there, is there hope that, that even a community like ours, a generation like ours, where um, we have this fractured feeling, we, we get the sense of, of disparity and equity around us, um, we, we do sort of have a failure, uh, a recognition of the failure we have to, to, to use our time in the best way that it, it, could, it could be. Is there, is there hope for us? And I actually do believe that if we take seriously what, um, what God is saying to us this morning, that the answer to that is resounding yes, is that once we as a community sort of get uh, configured, start to resonate with what the mission of God is around us, it will start to focus us and focus our energies and our resources towards things that uh, will ultimately lead to great good in our neighborhoods around us and our communities around us, but will also lead to hopefully a great sense of God's presence with us and God using us uh, the way we were meant to be used, that the deep longing will be fulfilled within us as we do that. Um, so I'm going to pray, but uh, let me say one thing before I do. Um, it can be a temptation when we talk about mission to talk about the so what, to, to, to think about a lot about the do's. And I, I hope that we also can can really immerse ourselves in the gospel this morning so that it's not leaving here with just a list of things that we should do now in order to live this sort of purposeful mission, missional life. So I just want to say one thing before we, we start and before we pray, um, is that if you came in this morning and you had the worst week of your life, you uh, messed up, you blew it, you are uh, frustrated, you, uh, you know, are feeling at odds with people that are close to you, if you had one of the worst weeks... Um, God doesn't love you any less. And if you came in and, and right before this, uh, right before this 
um, service, you were at breakfast and, and somebody came up to you as you were reading your Bible because you're, you've had your sixth straight day of quiet times, you know, and, and you're feeling really good about that. And they came up to you and they asked you, so what are you reading? And you were able to lead them to faith in Jesus. And they are sitting next to you in the church for the first time, right? If you had that kind of week, God doesn't love you anymore. Because what the gospel says is that uh, no one is so far from God that they are outside the reach of his grace, but that also no one is so good that they don't stand in desperate need of God's grace. So as we start, let that be our core note um, as we search the scriptures for what God might have us do as a community. Let me pray. Dear Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would take this moment, this special moment each week where we open up your word and we hear from teaching and proclamation what that word says and what it means for our lives, that, that you would do your work, the work that you've promised to do in moments like this. Um, Father, regardless of what are the words that are communicated, we don't put those trust in those words. We don't, we don't put the trust in the opinions or the, or the thoughts of, of men. We put our trust in the work of your Holy Spirit who can take any words, who can take even the most rudimentary or the most eloquent words, Lord, and use them to pierce the hearts of your people. Pierce them not merely to uh, wound them, Lord, but actually like a doctor to heal them, to restore them, to put them on a good and, and faithful path towards you. Um, Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to participate with you um, in what you are doing in this world. And may we see through this time uh, that work and our place within it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, um, so I want to start by reading uh, Genesis 1, uh, just a couple verses from Genesis 1, just to lay out sort of the, uh, the framework we're going to go through. I don't know if these made it to any kind of like Slide, but do we have? Yes, we do. Okay, great. So Genesis chapter 1, um, very well-known chapter, I'm sure. So we're coming to the end of it after which uh, God has spent uh, five days creating all that exists. Um, so just going to brush over that for now. Um, but then we get to this verse at the end of chapter 1 where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it should go, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what we see in uh, these, these couple of verses and at the beginning of Genesis, uh, that God gives to one creature and one creature only a special dignity to actually be made after his own image so that God places like an artist who, 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 who takes everything they are and the work that they're doing, fashioning it so that they are creating a representation of who they are in microcosm on the world, in the earth. He only does that to one creature, and that's men and women. And then he gives them a special responsibility to subdue and to cultivate the world around them. So that, work, that looks like naming the animals. That looks like cultivating the garden. That looks like growing 
uh, together in union to actually produce offspring that will fill the earth. Only one creature gets that responsibility, and it's men and women. So this is what is called in, by theologians the creation mandate, that uh, we are meant to go forward, to be fruitful and multiply and take ownership and, and cultivate to, to steward the earth. So this is a foundational text for the idea of stewardship. So then we fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 3, um, where some big things happen between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 3. Uh, though made perfect and though given every, um, everything that for, their, for their need and for their good, uh, Adam and Eve uh, sought for things that were something that was not good, which was to try to be equal with God, uh, basically to, to have uh, power like God and uh, usurp Him by, uh, by um, believing the serpent and uh, then eating of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. And it says in the, uh, in the curse that's given out um, in, uh, in, in Genesis 3, this is the curse that's given to the serpent. So this is after the fall. This is after man and woman, man and, uh, Adam and Eve sinned. And it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he there is the seed of the, the woman. The you there is the seed of the serpent. Um, this is what is known uh, in, uh, again, sort of church history as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first good news. And what it is, is it's a prophecy that even though uh, Adam and Eve have sinned and, and rightfully now are going to be banished from the garden, from the presence of God, from the perfect existence that they were made for, and now the earth is going to uh, work against them, and they're going to uh, make bread, and they're going to bring about this, com- this creation mandate through uh, great pain and suffering, that even though that's the case, God is not going to leave them alone, but he's going to send for them one of, the, one of the woman's offspring, and that offspring will crush the heel, uh, crush the head of the, uh, the serpent. And so you could really see that the rest of redemptive history, as in the rest of the biblical story, basically being a commentary on this verse, the unfolding of this dramatic tension, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of of the serpent. And so as we sort of fast forward and we look through the rest of Genesis, uh, we basically see man and uh, the husband and wife and then their offspring uh, again and again siding with the serpent and re- rebelling against their creator until ultimately in Genesis chapter 6, uh, as, as God is on the, um, the verge of sending a flood that will wipe out mankind, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So then uh, there's, a, there's a playing forward. We have the flood. After that, God renews the covenant to Noah, again telling them to be fruitful and multiply over the whole, the whole earth. And then, uh, I get, but then pretty soon starts down the downward spiral again until we get to Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 11 is, a, is an important illustration of uh, this tension, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. If we're going to understand what God's purpose is in the world, we need to be able to feel what it is for uh, this conflict to be at work. So, Genesis chapter 11, do we, do we have that or do I need to open, open to that? Okay, yeah, so verse 4. The people uh, are the they, and they are uh, wandering around. Uh, and then they come up with a bright idea. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower 
with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's a very important phrase there. Let us make a name for ourselves. Uh, the idea being that instead of God being the one who is working and whose name is given glory as his stewards take uh, uh, sort of ownership and, and are responsible for cultivating the earth, it's they who want to make a name for themselves. Lest, they say, we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So there's a crying out for security. There's a fear that they're going to, to be um, attacked by those outside. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all, all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So a couple things I want you to... Uh, to to, um, to, to notice. Notice back in Genesis chapter 11, the, the people following their own will, following trying to make a name for themselves, see technology as the answer for what ails them. Um, that, that, that if they create a city and a tower where they can compile their resources from which they can have a, a defensive posture that is, that is advantageous, that that will somehow protect them and preserve them. The second is, is that you see in Genesis 11 that, that to take sides with the serpent is basically to live into that, that man is the supreme being. That over against being the steward of all creation, men are now saying, we need to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. And I'd like you to just pause for a second and think about some of the ways we talk about faith in America. Sometimes we talk about faith as if you believe uh, then one, and, and G, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that one day you will spend eternity in heaven, in heaven with him. And that's what we sort of talk about as the gospel. And though not, uh, though not uh, wrong, I would contend that that is an incomplete picture of the gospel, and one we've often too much used because it tends to resonate with a culture and community where human beings are elevated as the highest and uh, the measure of all things. So it's a way to kind of uh, get and, and prod and, and, and push that button that we kind of long for um, and then sort of put a religious lens to it. Um, simultaneously, uh, sometimes when, uh, when, we, when uh, we think about, you know, salvation, sometimes we, we think about it in terms of, well, if we believe in Jesus, then our life will improve. I'll be able to kick this habit. I'll be able to, 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 to experience this abundant life they promise. That, that, if, that if, I, uh, if I believe in Jesus, then it's not, then, then whatever ails me will somehow go away. And again, Jesus, uh, you know, when he talks about what it means to follow him, he'll say that the disciple is no better than the master, and that if they persecuted him, they will persecute us as well. And so even in today's understanding, even in our understanding today of how we even talk about sometimes faith, we can see hints of this temptation that, the, that Adam and Eve fell into, this temptation that the, um, the people that followed them fell into, which is basically to make a great name for us and to enjoy the, the pleasures of and the, the good of this world for our benefit. And it will be uh, to our good. 
And what happens over and over and over again is that the more and more people reach for that, the worse and worse it gets. And that's the story of the unfolding of the Old Testament, that the, the people end up in, in Egypt, turned out to be, uh, you know, made slaves under Pharaoh. The story of the Exodus is, a, uh, is a, such a significant moment in this narrative of the seed of the woman, um, Israel, and Moses being the champion of that, of that seed, and the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh. You look at uh, the culture that, that, that exists there and the challenges that go on in that story, and you can see hints of this throughout. Well, so, so God restores and brings them out of that, of, that, uh, of that slavery. Well, it's not long before uh, they're in the wilderness and they want to go back to Egypt. It's not, and then, they, uh, then God preserves, even though he punishes that, uh, that generation, he still takes the people through uh, to, the, to the good and uh, prosperous land, almost like a recreation of the garden where there's going to be flowing uh, milk and honey and, and enough for everybody. Well, what happens is that they start taking, uh, making treaties with the nations around them and start taking wives and giving their daughters and sons in marriage to other countries, basically conspiring with and uh, partnering with those who are representing the seed of the serpent. And so again, doing uh, what they seem is best, what seems wise to them. And then this plays forward until they're, they're exiled uh, into uh, their countries because they've their kings even are uh, just uh, basically worse than the nations around them, um, basically living into this, uh, the, 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 the themes of this story in Genesis chapter 11. Um, and then uh, basically there's silence after that. So they're exiled, they're returned, and then there's silence. And we're left with this tension. Has God forgotten? Has God left the people alone? And then no, the, whole, the New Testament then is the reintroduction of this story where John the Baptist announces that one is coming who will be a champion for the people, who will lead them into a new exodus, who will lead them into a new creation, and there is a new kingdom that he is establishing. The problem is, is identifying who's on what side. Because the people that, that Jesus comes to often uh, start, represent more the values of the seed of the serpent than they do the seed of the woman. So he talks to the religious leaders, the most respected people in that day, and he says... Uh, he says, well, you claim to be of your father Abraham, Abraham, the covenantal uh, patriarch who represents the, the renewal of this, uh, um, the seed of the woman, you know, going forward. He says, you're not of your father Abraham, you are of your father the devil. And what, what he talks about is that, is that if you want to be part of my kingdom, it can't be in order to grow and, and establish your own little kingdom, your own little purposes. Uh, that you have, you have reasons for um, wanting a Messiah which are not uh, in, in God's economy. They're not godly. And he says, if anyone would follow me, this is Luke chapter 9, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And there we see uh, one of the clearest values of this new kingdom, which will inform the mission of the people. That instead of being about what I can grasp and take, instead of being about what my security and what, is, what is, seems good in my own eyes, what actually makes someone great in this kingdom, what actually makes someone great in the, the line of the, the seed of the woman is their willingness to take the role of a servant. And then in this new kingdom that, uh, that will be ruled by one who will, who will embody that sacrificial posture perfectly, it's not someone who will look out for their own interests, but it will be the one who looks after the interests of others that are celebrated. 
And that is where we get to the point of this, of the, the value of this kingdom and this word that we're all very familiar with, agape. And then to confirm that this kingdom is powerful enough to overcome the, the, the seed of the serpent, Jesus Christ lays down his own life on a cross, that he brings new birth, even a miraculous birth through his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, before he leaves his disciples, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that all that I've promised, that this new kingdom that I'm establishing, that's going to be built based on others, other-mindedness and agopic love, that it's going to overtake the, the kingdom that seems so powerful around you, the kingdom of the seed of the serpent. And then in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when we see all the many tribes that are gathered at Jerusalem for that feast, we see that sign fulfilled. And, um, and here, uh, this is the promise sending of a helper, the Holy Spirit, and then uh, the empowerment of the disciples, those apostles, to preach the good news. And then we'll see to embody the community that that good news establishes. So do we have the Acts chapter 2? Yes, we do. Okay, so verse... One, it says, when the day of Pentecost, and this was meant to, uh, this Pentecost was sort of a festival of harvest. Um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, and at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And that's a very important line. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And I want to uh, lay this scripture up before you because this is where the church begins. It's the, the moment that God empower, foresees to, to take this, this prophecy that he talked about so many uh, years before and to put life to it, to put power behind it, that uh, Jesus Christ, having confirmed the, the, that this new covenant, this new kingdom will have power in the earth, um, God sends the Holy Spirit, baptizes the disciples, and then they begin to proclaim the good news, and then not because they're uh, experts, in other languages, not because they've all uh, read up on Rosetta Stone, but because the Holy Spirit is working within them, they speak in the languages of the people there, their own language. And what I would submit to you, and if you take nothing else from this, what I would submit to you is that mission, going back to Genesis chapter 1, what we're made to do, that mission is the first language of the kingdom of the woman, that the mission of following Jesus, of living that agape love, of, of other interestedness, the servant-hearted, to be good news people, that this is our first and primary language. And so, uh, 
think about the contrast between Genesis chapter 11. I think about Genesis chapter 11, and I think about the movie Braveheart when um, they're at the, the big first battle, Sterling Bridge. And William Wallace, who's the hero of the story, hasn't shown up yet. And the men are really restless behind their leaders. And they start to leave. And, the, and, the, and the, the one captain turns around and says, wait, men, don't leave. We haven't negotiated yet. Um, in that, and, and that whole theme of that movie where, uh, you know, to negotiate, to get better lands for ourselves. This was not part of the agreement you hear from several of these cowardly, uh, you know, just, me- just meager men that, uh, that ultimately are the ones who betray Wallace, that in their, uh, in their sort of wanting more lands, they've just tried to gather enough people so that the other side will negotiate with them, so that rather than having a very ugly, uh, violent battle, they can come up with more lands, that they'll be able to make a name for themselves, a great name for themselves, and then be able to, uh, be able to uh, have security, even though they don't have freedom, even though it's all basically at the whim and will of this tyrannical ruler. So Genesis chapter 11 is the, you know, the cowards on that battlefield. And then, to contrast that, you have the man of, of William Wallace, who doesn't say to the people, he doesn't say to the people, okay, if you follow me, I'll get you lands. These guys are taking all your lands. I'll get those lands for you if you'll follow me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if, if you follow me, your life's going to get better. Think about all the slavery that you've had with these, with these people. He says, no. He says, you don't have freedom. You don't fight because I can give you anything, but because there is something out there that is more compelling, that is, that is more beautiful, that, that is more desirous to you, that you will be willing to lay down your life for it. And that's what the seed, of the, serp, the seed of the woman, the value of it is, is that rather than grasping at the small treasures that are right around us, be able to insulate us from the troubles that are around us, we actually step out in faith believing that something is beyond the cares and concerns of this world and actually something better that we were made for, that we long for. And I would contend to you, if you're someone who, you know, Christianity is new to you or, or you're somebody who's, who's, who's sort of struggling with what, whether to believe in, in this at all, um, that I'll tell you that so much of what you've been shown and represented to be to you, what the Christian life is, is so patently conditioned by the culture that we're in, the individualistic, consumeristic culture that is more about negotiation and gathering what is, you know, going to satisfy my desires than it is what God said our purpose is, the true mission of people. So, um, and I don't want you to, to hear, hear me say that in order to be saved, you must live an agopic life. In order to be saved, you must be other-centered, to give of your possessions, to not worry about the things that are around you, to not have anxiety. Martin Luther said that he believed in grace that is alone, grace alone, but he never, he doesn't believe in a grace that is, that, he believed in grace alone, but never grace that is alone. So it's never grace that just stays there. It's always, it, it always is accompanied by works. And so now we'll go a little further down in Acts, and we'll, we'll show you how, what this mission looks like, what this forming of a community based on this mission is. So verse, chap, verse 40. So this is after the whole sermon by Peter, and this is showing what the effects of that first baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It says, And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, 
saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I want to point out something uh, which I think is probably the most important thing that y'all could take away from this, uh, this sermon, if there was anything that you could take away from this sermon. Um, that is, did you, did you notice that, that this idea of the Lord adding to their number day by day those who are being saved has been repeated before? That at the beginning, it says that as a result of, of this moment, Peter said it in verse 40, I think, uh, for 41, it says that uh, many were added to the community that day. Right, there it is. Okay, so there's also, right after uh, verse 41, uh, in that they devote themselves, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Later on in verse 44, I think it is, um, what they'll do is they will, uh, commend, they will commend themselves to a worship. They will, uh, sorry, one more, 45. Hmm, No. Um, so, but anyway, verse 45, you'll have to take my word for it. Um, uh, it basically says that, that, uh, that they, bring, they come together and they're worshiping together, they're praying, they're committing themselves to, to, to eating together. Uh, yes, right. So they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. There's these, there's these activities of the community. On, on one hand, um, they are committing themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer. On the other hand, they are practicing uh, sort of religious service together and communities. No. So in between, and, and this is a very important uh, rhetorical device in, in ancient literature, what they'll, what they'll do is in order to make a point, they will actually put the most important thing in a passage at the middle. So it's called a chiastic structure. So if the end are that thousands of people are being added to the service, the, the, the community, and that if the, if, the, if the B line or the, the second idea is that, okay, they're practicing these these, uh, these activities, they're committing themselves to these things that are going to define their community. The middle section is what they're really uh, being meant to point to, which I think begins in, yeah, the one before, 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. It's that self-sacrificial love. It's that other-centeredness. It's other-centeredness. It's centeredness. It's that taking on a servant. And what I, what I want to you know, say, basically, what this, and I think its contrast in Genesis chapter 11 says, is that the gospel forces us out of our bubbles. It forces us out of the oppressive urge to serve ourselves. It unites us through a shared language. It unites us through a shared set of practices. And then it enlists us in a God-prioritized community. It makes us not about advancing our own selves, but about um, play, participating in a larger movement toward a common mission. So how do we do this? What are the, the takeaways from this idea? One is we have to start small. And so what I'm proposing is that you uh, create one small rhythm in your, in your day. 
Um, this is taken from Titus chapter 2, and if you uh, uh, want to, to read it in more depth later, um, I urge you to. But, um, but these are just three short, phrases, three short phrases that I would encourage you in a moment of, of peace, a moment of time away from, from uh, the busyness, the pressure of, uh, of what, what is going on in your day. I want you to create this rhythm each day. And it all is this, is just to start breathing in and out. And when you breathe in, I want you to think the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. And this is taken from Titus chapter 2, where it says, um, for the grace of God has, bringing, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Secondly, if you want, if you uh, sort of another second one, I am not my own, but have been bought with a price. Again, it's important to just repeat this, create a rhythm of this. And the idea is that, is that um, ultimately what makes a steward is understanding that we were not our own to begin with, that God has made us for a purpose and then bought us to renew us and redeem us. And the final uh, rhythm, the final phrase, say, he will come again. Uh, it says in Titus 2 that Jesus Christ, uh, we, are, uh, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Because the biggest part of, of staying on mission is we have to remember the story. We have to remember God's story, what he means when he says what mission is. That mission is... God's work to reclaim this world, which he loves, through a kingdom that advances through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit for and through those who claim Jesus as Lord. The mission of God is to reclaim this world, which he loves, through a kingdom that advances through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit for and through those who claim Jesus as Lord. So instead of being a people that wants to make a name for ourselves, instead of a people that wants to uh, work for security and, and blessing, that we would become a people that would learn our first language again. Um, that we would become a Zephaniah 3 people. Zephaniah 3 says, At that time, that appointed time, I, the Lord, will change the speech of the peoples to a, to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Giving up what we feel entitled to, what, is, what, it, what we feel like is ours, for the sake that we might relearn our first language, a first language which, uh, which God intends us to use to call the world to that same renewal, that same kingdom opportunity. Um. I was listening to the soundtrack of, of Braveheart um, as I was preparing the sermon. And, and uh, when I was younger, uh, Braveheart was a movie I couldn't watch, right? Because it was too violent and there was uh, one scene with some nudity. So just be careful for that. But, so I couldn't watch it, you know? What I've come to think is that Braveheart is actually one of the most Christian movies there is. What you have is you have uh, the story of a, of a champion who comes and he gives his life away for the sake of a, a greater cause and to bring people into that cause. And then those around him basically reject him, betray him, sell him out. And what happens is that through his great moment of sacrifice, uh, he actually changes not only his followers into a, a band of people that would, would take on the king, but he actually takes 
his betrayers and makes them a part of that same group. That the Robert the Bruce character, who was, in, who was uh, uh, instrumental in, in bringing about his demise and what they thought was going to end the, the rebellion, at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the story, uh, if, you, if you remember it, you know what happens, that they're at the field of that final battle. He stands up in front of the men and he says, you bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. That man who gave that sermon that led to that harvest, that started that community, that was the Apostle Peter, who a few days before had denied Jesus three times, turned his back on him. That's what grace does. That's who the kingdom of the seed, the seed of the woman, takes out and makes champions. Not because of their eloquence or because of their ability. There was nothing to commend Peter on that day. There was nothing to commend Robert the Bruce on that day. There's nothing to commend any of us. Because we have, we have each chosen to take sides with the serpent at different, at different times. But the good news is, is that God's not finished with us. And that if we uh, can take seriously the call to not only believe in Jesus, but participate in his mission, and he will transform us into the community that holds all things together. So, so that if there's ever a need, it will be met. And then what will happen is that will be an attractive, winsome uh, gospel witness to the outside world. And this community will grow because it is humanity's first language, not Christian's first language. It is humanity's first language. So if you all will speak it, people will, will gravitate to it. Let me pray. Dear Father, I thank you for uh, this time, and um, I thank you for uh, your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he died for us not merely as badges on his, uh, uh, his breast or his resume, but actually to include us in a family and make us into a community that loves and serves him. And Father, as we've looked through you know, your scriptures and, and seen what is your mission in the world. I pray that uh, these rhythms that we do, these small uh, you know, daily rhythms, might lead us to becoming zealous for your good works, zealous to be the people who will lay down our lives such that Jesus' life might be celebrated and held up. We ask this all in his name. Amen. So as a believer in Christ, as you've heard this message, um, it's probably a good chance you felt some level of conviction, thinking about how you're not living the way we're called, but also you've hopefully felt some level of encouragement, knowing that we do have this abundant life, this greater calling than just meeting our own selfish needs, that this self-sacrificial life, this service life is really what we're called for, 